This is Annual Reviews Audio. Find us on the web at www.annualreviews.org. I'm Margaret Levy, and I'm the current editor of the Annual Review of Political Science and a professor at the University of Washington. And I'm very pleased to be here with Professor Robert Dahl, Professor Emeritus of Yale University, Department of Political Science, and former president of the American Political Science Association, and one of the true giants in the field of political science. And this is a great honor. This is our first uh, prefatory interview uh, piece for the Mm -hmm. Annual Review Mm -hmm. of Political Science, and I can think of no one uh, better for that task than you, Bob. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here with you. Bob, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your history and how you got into political science and some of the things that you did before you became a political scientist. Uh, Certainly. I don't know how uh, much of that you want uh, me to narrate. It can go on endlessly, as my children and grandchildren have have learned. Uh, But uh, I grew up in this uh, little town in southeastern uh, Alaska. I worked uh, summers, uh, uh, partly to help pay my way through uh, college and then later graduate school, where I came into contact with, um, of course, they were local people whom I already knew, uh, but also uh, on the docks, uh, people whom I didn't know, working people. And that exposed me to an aspect of life which I've never forgotten. So you were involved with the uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union before well, I, it became that. Uh, before it became that, and I was a great advocate, feeling then partly because I was a, a Norman Thomas socialist and a, and, a, and a radical and an advocate of unions and so on, and I felt that they, should, they needed to be organized. And then in due time, they did indeed get organized, and one of the th- first things that they did quite properly was to... to uh, and turn it into a year-round job, and I was no longer able to work on the docks. Right. <laughs> and you were quite a young man when you were doing that, 12. Or... Yeah, I started out at the age of 12, which, of course, would be totally illegal now. Right. <laughs> but I was, I was big and strong, and so it wasn't really a problem. And uh, uh, It was an important part of my life, yeah. And it informed your work later, I take it. It, 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 it did. Of... I, uh, I had that and uh, my military uh, service uh, and growing up in a small town, it just gave me a very deep and lasting respect for what is often said ordinary people. Uh, I, I think that, I don't like that term, but just uh, plain ordinary human beings. I've uh, <laughs> respect them for, among other things, so that they've got degrees of common sense, which are not always so obviously uh, present in our in our colleagues and other intellectuals. <laughs> and did that experience have an influence on the way in which you thought about democracy? That's been, of course, one yes. of your major contributions sure, is sure. democratic theory. Yes. I think it gave me, and, I, and without ever, I, I think, ever romanticizing, because these were <laughs> not people you'd romanticize as somehow super, uh, super people or anything like that. But it gave me a very deep and lasting respect for the common sense and the abilities of human beings at the same of of, uh, of yeah of uh, human beings adults. At the same time, the it uh, increased my awareness of the importance of of information and the challenge that that posed. Therefore, the challenge of education 
challenges of education and the uh, the uh, uh, great gap between what uh, people need to know in order to protect their own self-interest and what they do know, mm -hmm. which of course in some Platonic and other theories is filled in by those who believe that they know, know best, uh, a view which as you know I've always greatly distrusted. <laughs> right. Maybe you could tell us a little bit why it was that you uh, began to develop the kind of theory of democracy and polyarchy that you did. I had this sense that uh, ideas about democracy, theories of democracy, which I had uh, learned about, of course, from graduate school on, and from uh, Aristotle and Plato onward in the, in the historically, um, that they were inadequate in... This is, I don't want to diminish them. I've always retained a great respect for classical uh, and uh, medieval and, and 18th century theory. But that, uh, meanwhile, a whole new kind of political system to which the term democracy became attached and for which democracy was an, remained an ideal, even though classical democracy as, as an ideal was so far removed from the reality, uh, that the gap between that ideal and the actual political institutions that had developed, particularly from about the 16th, 17th century on, was just enormous. And that what we didn't have uh, enough of, we didn't have very little of, was an adequate description of what the actual institutions of so-called democracy, modern democracy, representative democracy, were. And they were, as I've already said, they were radically different right. from historical democracy, uh, but are our descriptions of them and how they related to the ideals, mm -hmm. uh, I felt at that time was, was lacking. Now, when you proceeded to develop a theory, um, your approach to it was also somewhat different from the classical theoretical approach mm -hmm. to it. I mean, one of the things that I've noted mm -hmm. in your work mm -hmm. is even though you're not known as a political economist per se, in mm -hmm. fact, you were very influenced mm -hmm. by economic thinking mm -hmm. and your mm -hmm. work with Ed Lindblom and others. Yes. Uh, Ed was a, uh, uh, is, uh, I don't see him very often, he's a different part of the country, but a very close friend and a colleague. And uh, I'd, be, I'd been interested in economic theory and, uh, and uh, ideas, even as, as an undergraduate, and had come to the conclusion that uh, we in political science didn't pay enough attention to the importance of economics to, uh, to uh, politics and political, political science. And uh, so I spent uh, a lot of my time trying to bring that together, including, as I've said, collaborating with Ed Lindblom on our- Ed Lindblom, who is known as Charles Lindblom in the, at, I, I, as a published author. Yes, I'm sorry, yes, Charles Lindblom, yes, yes. Um, but did that economic thinking also influence the way in which you thought about democracy, or were those really separate projects? I was, uh, yes, uh, it influenced it in the sense that that kind of abstract thinking and models, while I felt it often bore too little relation to the reality of and the complexity of economic life, it provided a degree of rigor and a way of thinking about uh, politics that I felt that 
even though ours uh, the political systems are, I think, more complicated than economics are, and political behavior is more complicated than economic behavior, nevertheless provided a, uh, a kind of model <laughs> or hope right. uh, that uh, we could make use of for, uh, excuse me, increased rigor in uh, in uh, political Because there's also a deductive quality in your thinking about democracy as well as a concern yes. Yes. about thinking about how it yes. fits with yes. reality. I was influenced very early on. Uh, my first time at the, I spent a year at the uh, center in Palo Alto, the Institute for Advanced Studies there. I became uh, friends I think he was not at the center that year, but he lived in Palo Alto. Became a good friend of Kenneth Arrow. Right. And uh, marvelous man. Marvelous man, both as a person and as a scholar. Yeah. And uh, I became, as I say, uh, greatly influenced by the way in which he dealt with phenomena. And this and was in the early fifties. It was been. yes, I think it was fifty-five, fifty-six. Because you were in one of the first classes. Yeah, at the it center. was. Yes, I had been on the. Uh, uh, Social Science Research Committee under Pendleton Herring, Ben Herring, Pendleton Herring, we'll say. Another uh, former president, uh, no, uh, Right. <laughs> uh, that um, came up with the idea mm -hmm. and uh, then helped to uh, get money from the Rockefeller Foundation to, to develop it. You so, know, I'm the current chair of the board of the Center for Advanced Studies. Yes, study. <laughs> you are. Yes, oh my, yes. Well, I'm very proud of that. Uh, having made what small contribution they did to the You made a big contribution. <laughs> oh, thank you. So Ken Arrow and you started to talk, mm -hmm. and um, he was, of course, working on issues of democratic theory, in mm -hmm. a sense, at mm -hmm. that time, mm -hmm. right? His, his book had just come out. And his, his book had come out. So I was influenced by that as a, as a, a model of uh, a way of thinking more abstractly, perhaps, than has been customary about uh, democratic theory, making clear the, 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 the premises, the epistemological assumptions and, and uh, matters of that kind. And I think <laughs> that sort of set the stage. And then once you get in, of course, into that field, uh, which was uh, not highly, I don't know how to put this properly, as a formal field in political science was not highly developed at the time. Once you get into it, you uh, quickly become aware of how, how rich the potential subject matter is. And one of the enormous uh, changes, perhaps anticipating a question of yours, and a positive change, I think, is, uh, well, one of the, one of the changes in the world uh, is the extraordinary increase in the number of countries that by the standards that we use today can be called democratic. Always, I repeat this and repeat this, but always keeping in mind the difference between the ideal and the threshold at which we now accept a country as democratic or right, a polyarchy, right. as I would say. And the enormous increase in the number of those available for study. When I was a graduate student, there were maybe half a dozen countries that you, right, could, right. you could study, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, France and, and uh, Britain and uh, not even quite sure of Canada quite in that time and oh, that important democratic government the United States. And then the expansion mm -hmm. created out there a field of, with numbers of it that uh, was both a challenge and an opportunity. Well, your own work on democracy evolves over time, right? So it did. That 
maybe you could talk a little bit about mm -hmm. the kinds of criticism that you got and how you responded to that, because your work really did yes. just keep going it, with the it, times. It, it, it did. I uh, 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 helped to form this group on the smaller European democracies. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, people like a good friend of mine, Val Lorman, who had studied Belgium and Stein Rokan and right. uh, Scandinavian uh, democracies. And uh, we came to the realization, in fact, Stein and I walking down the streets of San Francisco, um, he was out at the center one afternoon or evening and said, you know, we need, he said, or I said, or we both agreed instantaneously, we need more studies of these smaller European democracies, which are so little known, yeah. even among scholars in those countries themselves. In some of them, like Sweden, uh, less so at the time in Norway, but it had a strong potential tradition there. There's a strong tradition. Um, not much studying by their own scholars. Right. And we agreed that something should be done. And so we raised money and uh, began to invite people to contribute to what <clears throat> first became <clears throat> a series of essays on the smaller European democracies and then volumes right. <laughs> as, as volumes. They, they went on. <laughs> right, right. And now it goes on and on as the number of, of smaller democracies around the world uh, and so it's a whole rich, new, gigantic field. And how did you get from democracy to polyarchy? What was that move? What did that represent? Yes, I came to the conclusion quite early on. Polyarchy was a term that I think had been developed in the 18th century, as you know from its riches, meaning many rulers, polyarchon. And um, uh, I came to the conclusion early on that trying to use the word democracy in both its ideal and in its realistic sense, particularly since the, uh, the actual democracies uh, uh, had evolved with representative and representation mm -hmm. and uh, the growth of political parties mm -hmm. into a whole new species. Mm -hmm. It's a whole new different kind of system that we needed then language, or needed to modify our language, uh, so that we could describe democracy as an ideal, using the term democracy there. <clears throat> but that we needed a term, and never actually became a, a household term, that we needed a term that described uh, where we knew we were talking about actual um, 18th, 19th, 20th century uh, democracies. <clears throat> and um, I stumbled on the word polyarchy and started applying that. As I say, it didn't become a... Uh, term, but I think we're probably now more. No, I do think it's still confusing uh, that the term applies um, uh, to both. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we're a little bit more comfortable now, perhaps, than we were in making sure which it is we're talking about. And when we use the word democracy, whether we're talking about uh, small-scale democracy, large-scale democracy polyarchy, as I would call it, multi-party democracy. It's become a whole, uh, much more diverse, much more complex. Well, I field. think the term democracy itself has become more of a continuum than just an ideal term. I agree. And yeah. uh, a number of uh, people, of course, have, even, and I've made my stab at it, 
attempt to develop a scale. Right. And I think it's very helpful uh, to, to uh, not to oversimplify it, but to be able to array the, the countries of the world on a 10-point scale from the most democratic, uh, with democratic ideal beyond that, but those that are above a certain threshold and the most democratic and array them along the line to the least democratic. That's very useful. And, uh, now, one of the things that, uh, you know, William Riker did, um, looked at the various notions of democracy and decided yeah. that the only thing they had in common was, uh, was elections and yeah. contested elections. Now, yeah. you have a richer definition of democracy and polyarchy than that is. Yes, I, I think it has to, uh, 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 if we move to uh, later democracy and uh, sort of thing that, that he was uh, talking about. I think we have to include a wider array of institutions mm -hmm. to distinguish it from authoritarian uh, governments. And even there, we need a, a scale uh, to, to do so. But it needs uh, uh, not just uh, elections. It needs free and fair elections. It, I think it's come in the 20th century to mean a, a universal uh, electorate, uh, male and female. Mm -hmm and moving the age down a bit. Mm -hmm. and that's now just standard. Uh, 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 political parties mm -hmm. and uh, political competition in, in free and fair, fair elections. And uh, something that I've tried to add on without, I suppose, a great deal of success, uh, either in the real world or elsewhere, the, ultimate popular control over the agenda. Right. If somebody else is controlling the agenda, what's it all about? Well, that seemed to me the interesting move that you made mm -hmm. over the course of developing this, is yes. participation in various forms yes, it was. became much more part of your yeah. argument about true. democracy. It's true, yeah. And to, uh, yes, participation. In the, and then, of course, I uh, called attention to is began to see... Uh, well, actually, I'd early, even in my doctoral dissertation, seen that. But also, we needed to think about democracy in other spheres. Mm -hmm. And I became uh, more interested and did more research on uh, democratic forms within business firms. And while my own uh, optimistic perspective on that never prevailed, but <laughs> I had and hopes. Less so today. <laughs> and less so today. <laughs> I, it's become more and more uh, oligarchical, hierarchical, yeah, don't you think? I think that's yeah. true. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was um, an undergraduate and a graduate student, uh, I was part of a group of people who were quite critical of the pluralists. Yes, right? yes, yes. Now, you were considered a pluralist. I was indeed, yes. And do you think that's a term that still has meaning today? Well, I think the, the core of the meaning is um, uh, observing some political systems and seeing that. Well, let me go. Let me go back in history. We were reacting. I was reacting to the what seemed to me the oversimplified view of uh, those, including the uh, famous. Uh, Italian theorists um, about the ruling class. Right. And as I began, and in my experience in, in Washington as an intern and later fortified that, I began to see the ruling class as, as pluralistic. 
uh, in, in, in many, many countries, and as it turned out, is more and more countries. Meaning by that, that there was not a single homogeneous uh, group of, of people, men they would be, with, a, with a, a common unifying interest, but that there was more diversity there. Uh, that's not exactly the same as democracy, but it means that if you have democratic institutions, they're going to be, be more pluralistic in the sense um, uh, 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 groups, wider groups, are going to be participating. And that's part of what's behind who governs, right? And that's, that's part of what's behind who governs. To take a look, uh, I can remember sort of beginning to think about this while I was at the center and afterwards, where I'd done a lot of thinking about this, talking about it, that, well, maybe I better take a look at some concrete, actually existing political system and see what's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, you can argue that I began with the bias towards seeing diversity or plurality, and uh, that would be a fair criticism. But once you begin looking for it in... Uh, a country like the United States, or even a, even a place like New Haven, you began to see it, I mean, starting with our ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. for example, and uh, it, uh, and, and I found that that at that time that I would say dominant but very powerful tendency to want to see this as somehow simplified was too simplified. So you weren't just responding to the Italians, not just to Mosca, and, but no. also to C. Wright Mills, and I, I Floyd was. Hunter, and yes. the whole community yes. power yes. elite yes. structure. I did. Uh, uh, I had great respect for C. Wright Mills. I uh, didn't have that much respect for Floyd Hunter's work, but, but um, I felt it was too simple, mm -hmm. just too simplified a view of, uh, of politics. And... Uh, while you know, keeping in mind that possibility. And also, you, know, you could array countries around the world, as I and some of my students and later fellow scholars did. You could array them along a, a scale and mm -hmm. from those that were highly authoritarian and those that were non-authoritarian. Well, this is where your work on democracy and on power really sort of come together, right? Yes, In do. thinking about what a democracy is, that it has to have yes. at least some pluralist element. Yes. Now, the concept of power is another thing in which you have clearly been a leader. And it comes out of the work yeah. on who governs. And it produced, again, a, uh, an interesting argument that was a major controversy yes, that yes. dominant. I mean, I took a seminar as I mentioned to you with Peter Backrack when yes, I was yes. an undergraduate at Bryn Mawr, yes. which was on power, and of course yes. he was one of your major critics, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, but that was a very lively debate um, in the 60s and well into the 70s. Perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about that debate and where you think what's happened with the way of thinking about power? There was then the dominant, this rather simplified view of, of uh, of power, and what I think opened up was a realization of its complexities. How did how did you find it? Its uh, characteristic qualities and of uh, political political regimes as as uh, being much more diverse in the distribution of power, and also then the more serious attempt as to how to go about observing and measuring it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was that was That's quite really crucial. Well, 
was really crucial because you can talk about it in the abstract uh, as the Italian theorists tended to do, but then you need to get out in the world and study it. Right. And how do you do that? Right. What kind of methodology do you use? And, uh, and I think there's been a great deal of progress in the field uh, since the 1950s. I think also uh, the, um, the enormous increase in the number of countries in the world and the increase in the variety of politics has so made a much more challenging field, but a richer one as, as well. And scholars in those countries right. who may be trained uh, elsewhere, but who now increasingly trained within those countries, uh, who study their own political systems. Right. And uh, I mean, it's a much more difficult field for a young scholar because it is so very rich and trying to make some kind of sense out of it all is almost impossible. But it's a very uh, big, and to overuse that term, rich field, I think. Of it is. It's very yeah. exciting, actually, yeah. what's going yeah. on. There was this, as we mentioned, a very important debate that you really initiated to a large extent with who governs. Mm -hmm. um, in response to the uh, simplified elitist views mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. Italians, and there were others who got into that debate mm -hmm. trying to opera operationalize mm -hmm. the term, um, like Jim Coleman and mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. And then there were a group of people like Peter Backrack, who I mm -hmm. worked with, mm -hmm. um, and ultimately Michael Lipsky and Francis mm -hmm. Fox Piven and others, who mm -hmm. were, and Stephen Lukes, yes, yes. who were quite mm -hmm. critical of your view of power, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because they felt that there was a mobilization of bias or hegemony mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or something else mm -hmm. that actually, they were called the neo-elitist, right? Yes, because yes, yes. Um, mm -hmm. there was an issue about voices mm -hmm. that were left out or mm -hmm. voices mm -hmm. that weren't heard, mm -hmm. right? Yes. In the, in the way in which the mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. worked. Now, I'm interested in your response to their, because mm -hmm. you then went on and responded mm -hmm. to them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What was at issue for you in that debate as it developed? Not, you, you started mm -hmm. by responding to the mm -hmm. elitist, mm -hmm. But then you had to deal with the neo-elitists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I uh, guess that I continued to, to see politics, the political life, life in Washington, um, as I say, both uh, living there and working there and so on, and afterwards uh, as more complex than I felt many observers uh, who were sometimes a bit distant from it all, uh, did. Even when I worked in Washington during the, during the wartime with the, the uh, War Production Board, that uh, its decisions were a bit more complex, if I can keep over, overworking that word, mm -hmm. uh, than uh, many people who looked at it from afar had, uh, had, had was it were aware of. Now, it's true that I think a function of science, and certainly a function of the social science as well, is to simplify this complexity of reality right. and to provide a more adequate way of understanding it and seeing it. Because if we try to understand it as complexity, we don't understand it. It's like looking out at the stars at night. It's great to look out at night and see the stars, but you're not understanding anything right. about right. the nature of the universe. It has to be simplified. And simplification, you, you lose... Uh, 
some potential information, but the gain is to provide comprehensibility and coherence. Well, the other thing that, um, in my memory of what was going on at that time, was there was a real issue about how you operationalize and how yes. you actually test and yes, yes. what kinds of theories and models yes, you could yes, test and yes. which ones you couldn't. Yes, yes. And that's another area in which I yes. think your contribution is quite yes. significant. Yes. Well, that was your, I appreciate your uh, bringing that up because that too was something that I began to think about. Probably again, I was probably influenced during that year that I spent at the center in Palo Alto on issues of operationalizing concepts and of testing concepts and so on. Uh, how to bring them into touch with the reality in, in uh, rigorous, methodologically rigorous ways became mm -hmm. a, a uh, challenge to me. And once again, people uh, like uh, James Coleman, uh, their attempts at that I think had an influence on my uh, way of, of, of thinking about it. I'm hearing several themes as we talk. Mm -hmm. um, your substantive interest in democracy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. power and mm -hmm. democratization. Yes, yes, yes. And, and diffusion yeah. of power. Mm -hmm. um, but also your, your methodological commitment to mm -hmm. testability and mm -hmm. operationalization. Yes. But finally, I'm also hearing something which I guess I hadn't quite realized before, was your commitment to a kind of interdisciplinarity. Um, you're talking about being influenced by economists. Mm -hmm. James, Col James Coleman was an mm -hmm. eminent sociologist. Mm -hmm. Yes. So a way of thinking about social science as a social science, mm -hmm. not just as political mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. is, is that something that you think um, is a good thing for us to be developing? Should we be... You know, one of the things that's happened, we were talking about that mm -hmm. before, earlier, is that social science has spread its boundaries. The, the disciplinary mm -hmm. cores mm -hmm. are shifting, in mm -hmm. a sense. Um, is that good, do you think, for the future? Or should we be going back to core ideas in, our, in political science? Well, I think that it's important uh, always to retain uh, awareness of of uh, what you call core ideas, including, including those in the, in the tradition of political philosophy, I think, keeping in touch with those earlier political philosophers, uh, being aware of them as a part of our training, I think that's still quite worthwhile. I know, or I'm, I would guess less and less of that may be taking place, but uh, at the same time, uh, uh, that we uh, try to uh, remain aware of the of the richness and complexity of the of the world that we deal with out there, and how much more, <laughs> in a way, uh, it's always been complex, but how much more complex it's it has it's become, grown. Yeah. Especially the the field of democracy is now in just the sheer number and varieties. <laughs> So when you think about um, what has happened in social science since you began, do mm -hmm. you see it as advancing? Is there, are there issues you think we've, things we've lost, things we've gained? Mm -hmm. What would be your assessment at this, looking back at this mm -hmm. point in your life? Again, the social science is now the richness and variety of the types of inquiry that we undertake and the fact that it is a worldwide discipline, which is enormously enriching this uh, field. The cost of all of this 
is that as we grow more specialized, uh, uh, we, we, uh, it becomes more and more difficult for anybody to, to grasp broad areas of the field. But as we grow more specialized, we may be less and less sensitive to aspects of the, of the world that are outside of our, our specialty. And uh, the, uh, uh, much as I respect aspects of, of rational choice theory, to see that as somehow a dominant way of thinking would be a terrible blunder. Because, as I say, it's important, but it cannot encompass the empirical variety and complexity of the world. Nothing can, right. but it can't be done by rational choice. That can be a, a part. It should be a part, but it's a much broader uh, uh, enterprise. It's got to be. And is your sense that rational choice is, is, has that hegemonic or dominant role right now? I, I, I don't know about right, right now. I think it did for a while. Mm-hmm. It uh, uh, came, to, came to play too, uh, I think, too dominant a role to the exclusion of kind of tough-minded empirical research out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much about the world you can deduce. <laughs> right, right. You've got to get out there and you've got but to feel it. But it seems to me at Yale, for sure, um, there is a large group of people now who are doing exactly that kind of tough-minded yeah. empirical work. Yeah, there, there is. So I'm very encouraged by that, I, sure. It's, and uh, I think it's happening all over. I yeah. Mean, I think rational you, choice has yeah. become another tool in I, the toolbox. I'm, I'm glad. You, that's my, been my impression, and I think that's where it should be. Yeah. And uh, the richness now, I'm repeating myself, but... Uh, the diversity of, the, of uh, research in, in uh, political science and, uh, and political scientists is just impressive. I absolutely agree. And that's a positive, you know, often there's a tendency for older people and with their social sciences or whatever to look back on the good old days. Well, the good old days were, were not that good in social sciences. They were too well, bad. you've been somebody who's really brought the scientific impulse. I, mm-hmm. I mean that in the nicest mm-hmm. possible way. Mm-hmm. But the, the emphasis on theory building, mm-hmm. theory testing, uh-huh. conceptualization. Oh, thank you. And that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I want to conclude with um, a concern that I have that I think mm-hmm. you share mm-hmm. um, about what's happened to the field. And this comes back to your concern about power as being both a Mm -hmm. crucial concept to understand Mm -hmm. democratization, Mm -hmm. but also a crucial concept to understand the political world. Mm -hmm. And my concern is that we aren't focusing very much on power as political scientists any Mm. longer. I don't know if that's your sense or not, and if you think Mm -hmm. that would be a loss if that were the case. Well, you're a better better judge than I as to where the field has gone, where it is now. But the answer is definitely it would be a loss. Uh, Power and influence have been the center of, uh, and this is not necessarily an argument in favor of keeping it, but power and influence have been the center of the field of the study of politics from, from, from the beginning. And what's more, they are, they are uh, central elements in, our, in all of our lives, from our daily lives, our family lives, this interview, right. <laughs> and what on. And, and they're enormously complex. If you, if you expand, as I tried to do some years ago, to to uh, uh, power as a kind of subset of the broader field of influence, 
uh, with a variety of ways in which uh, influence of humans, human beings over other human beings takes place, it's almost too, too complex to, uh, to um, be able to turn into a scientific di discipline. But that's the challenge. That's the challenge. I think that's the challenge. Bob, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. This is Annual Reviews Audio. Find us on the web at www.annualreviews.org.